In the second year of King Darius, on the twenty-first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Jerobabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the, all, the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the Lord says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and the fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, No. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the, the, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with these people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hell. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundations of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. 
tell Jeroboam, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Jeroboam, son of Shetil, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Thanks, Freeling. Uh, if you have your, uh, keep your Bibles open to Haggai chapter 2, and be sure that you have a leaflet in front of you because there's a sermon outline in there with some Bible passages I'll refer to later on. So be sure you have those things. Uh, if you don't, you can put your hand up and maybe one of our ushers will, uh, will send one to you. Let me pray uh, before we have a look in Haggai. Father God, we give you great thanks that uh, you are still speaking to us. Father, you, are, you have thought ahead. Uh, you know what is it that we need to hear. And Father, we get to hear from Haggai today. We pray that you would speak. And that, Father, you would work through your spirit within us. That we might be able to receive what you have for us today. And that, Father, it might impact our hearts and our minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we heard that God has left us with some building work to do in his house the foundation stone of his house is Jesus, and we believers of Jesus are the stones built upon him. And as God's house, we get to join in with God in the task of building or edifying or growing each other. It kind of sounds like an enormous task, doesn't it? And plenty can surely discourage us. I don't know whether you read the advertiser, but the advertiser on Wednesday had an article about the census results from last year, particularly about Adelaide. The title was, New City of the Churchless. We're richer, more likely to be godless, divorced, and less likely to migrate to South Australia from England. How about that? They can really you know, be provocative when they want to be, don't they? With more and more people choosing to identify as without a religion, how does that make us feel when we're here engaging in the work that God has on his church? There will be lots of voices speaking against Christianity and seeking to distract us from the job. And those voices can come from our own minds. We need courage for this work. Now, in chapter 1 of Haggai, we saw that God was calling his people to restart the building work of his house, his temple. It's time to prioritize his house over their houses, despite the voices that are against them. He wants to reside with his people. He wants to bless them, but he won't do it with their backs facing him. The chapter ended with a resounding obedience from every single person in the camp. But God knows that if they are to persist with his building work, they're going to need courage and strength, and God's got that covered. So we now pick it up in chapter 2 after a month has passed, and there's already some sadness in the camp. 
The Lord speaks again through the prophet Haggai. Verse 2, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnants of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, there's God acknowledging what they were thinking, what they were feeling, and what they saw was, well, unspectacular and such a mess. There were people there who saw how it was in Solomon's time. It was just expansive and glorious during that time. The finest timber, like cedar and cypress and costly building stones, were used everywhere in its construction. Gold was used for the altar and to overlay the furnishings, adorned with jewels and gems. There's an estimate that Bible charts make uh, about the cost of this temple. And in today's terms, it would be $6 billion. Imagine that, the temple, $6 billion worth. Ezra 3 tells us how the people wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple they were building. Because even from that, it was nowhere close to its former glory. Compared to that, this is nothing. Buckingham Palace, the home of Queen Elizabeth, is the most expensive house in the world. 775 rooms. There's a chapel there, a post office, a movie theater, an indoor swimming pool, and it's got its own ATM, just in case you needed it. Gold absolutely everywhere, and Forbes values it as $7.1 billion. Now imagine if they decided to move the Queen into a retirement home, and they decided to choose Delbridge House. You know Delbridge House? Just across the way over there. Some of you might think it's an upgrade, but everyone else will be thinking that it was nothing, nothing compared to her multi-billion dollar home. Well, the Israelites were in tears because they were building something that looked much more like Delbridge House than Buckingham Palace. And in the face of their downcast faces, God encourages them. Verse 4. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. It may look like nothing, but be strong, God says. Notice what will be the source of their strength. It is God. For he will be with them according to his covenant with them. His spirit will remain with them. A covenant involves promises God makes to his people and expectations which he establishes for them. God chose to create a people out of nothing and save them from captivity in Egypt. And he continues to sustain them and to protect them. And God promises to be with his people and to bless them. And the right response is for his people to obey him through the commands of his covenant. See, if God is... To be with his people, then we kind of need to know how rightly to relate to him. Thus the covenant. The covenant says that obedience leads to continued blessing. 
and disobedience leads to discipline and curses. So God here is following through on his covenantal promises to be with them. Do you think for a moment, it is incredibly gracious and generous of God that he would persist with his covenant when his people had thoroughly broken it. You know, got the curses of Deuteronomy and was cast out of the land. As I mentioned last week, this is, it's kind of like a second exodus, having brought out of exile and back to their land. And God says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua, and all the people. And incidentally, there was another Joshua at the first exodus. And he too was told in your leaflets to be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. There is certainly a sense of deja vu here, isn't it? God is being entirely consistent with the way that he deals with his people. And God calls Israel to be strong, just like he called Joshua from Egypt to be strong, because he is with them by his spirit. Keep working on my house, my people. I am with you all the way, he says. There's more encouragement. For God's isn't going to settle for an inferior home or even a restored one. He's going to surpass the last build. Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Can you just hear the rumbling of the earth and the dry land as it quakes and cracks and shivers? Can you see the waves of the seas churning and breaking and crashing? You look up. Can you feel the clouds quiver and tremble and explode? The peoples of the surrounding nations will be shaken until their precious silver and gold is funneled into God's house. People, you thought the first temple was decorated with sparkly things, Well, put on your sunglasses because you haven't seen anything yet. It's exactly what comes to pass, according to Ezra 6. Treasures from the Babylonian treasury were sent back to the temple. Uh, Supplies from the neighbors too, just given to them because God made it so. I think we can miss the real treasure though. I wonder whether you got slightly distracted by very shiny things. I mean, I I didn't really help, did I? Did you see the enormous gem that God is really offering? Well, that would be his peace, wouldn't it? Peace between him and his wayward people. Peace between themselves. Peace between them and the world. Peace for us. This peace is of far greater value than any silver or gold or precious jewel. 
The way in which God has arranged for his people to find peace with him is through the sacrificial system he has set up for them. Animals were offered and sacrificed to God to symbolize that his anger and judgment would fall upon them rather than his people. It all highlighted the fact that when God's people rebelled and sinned against him, he was rightly angry. If not for his arrangement in the temple, there would be no peace between his people and him. No wonder God is really interested to make sure that his house is rebuilt. God calls them to be strong and work because he will be with them by his spirit and he will grant peace. Now at this point for us today, it's really right and appropriate for us to ask the question, do we have, do we ourselves have peace with God? Right? Haggai forces us to ask this question of ourselves. The Israelites were mistaken to think that all was well between them and God. We can learn from their mistakes. Well, two months passes and God speaks to Haggai again. This time he's going to get quite pointed. Precisely because his people have assumed all was right between he and them. See, instead of being strong and working on God's house, they presumed upon him. He starts off with a lesson on ritual purity. And it's a lesson that the people would be very familiar with. And he gets the experts involved with the lesson. Verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, well, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. For something to be consecrated, it means that it's set apart and kept from impurity for a purpose. And in this case, kept and set apart in order to be used in the temple. Now this might be a little bit strange and foreign to us, right? So I've got, a, I've got something that will help us appreciate what this means. There was a very memorable Christmas dinner in the Leo household. The feature on the dinner table was a roast turkey. And when it arrived, it was greeted with oohs and ahs as you smell the turkey roasted and see the gravy until we discovered something moving in the gravy. There was a fly that had drowned itself in there and its offspring was wriggling next to it. Maggots were taking a dip in our turkey roast swimming pool. Now, what would you have done in that circumstance? Some of you might say, what's the problem? Just remove the stuff, put it in the microwave, zap it, disaster averted, right? Some of you, well, actually probably all of you, might have said, well, at least the dog got a lovely dinner. <laughs> the turkey was set apart for our Christmas dinner. The maggots don't become edible because it's sat in turkey juices. The turkey, on the other hand, was sullied by the disgusting maggots. Oh, I think I just lost my appetite. <laughs> The point of God's purity lesson is in verse 14. 
says, Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. God's nation of people had been disobedient. They were more concerned about their panel houses than they were about God's house. It was because they did not care for the honor of their God. They were the maggots in God's turkey roast. They were defiled, unclean. This means that all the work they did on their homes and their labor to keep their crops growing and the tending of their livestock were all unacceptable before God. Ezra 3 tells us that one of the first things that the people did when they did return to the land all that 16 years ago was to erect an altar and to sacrifice offerings according to the law of covenant. And it must have been just so disheartening to discover that even what they've been offering there was abhorrent to the Lord rather than acceptable. And the following verse explains why. Verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Haggai is returning to the point made in chapter 1 that God was the one who curtailed their crops because they had neglected his house. They had neglected him. Did you pick up what it was that God really wanted? It, it wasn't merely about a wooden building. It was about his people returning to him. It was quite clear that in all their work, all their labor, all their sweat were not for God, it was for themselves. What God really wanted was for them to honor him, to return to him. I think this makes us pause today as then, doesn't it? Because I think sometimes we can look at the work and the fruits of our labors, and we can often see, especially when it's going really well, we can often just baptize it and say, well, this is what God wants for me. I think Haggai makes us pause. Because just because we've worked hard and studied hard, gotten that job, that house, that car, that holiday, that lifestyle, doesn't mean that God is pleased. We've got to pause. Well, God decides to put things right. And with the next verses, he gets his people to give careful thought. And he repeats that, that phrase, give careful thought. And so we need to be ready to give careful thought as well. Verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Mark the time, God says. Remember this moment. Up to now... Things weren't just running out. They have run out. No more seeds left. No more fruit. This is the day that I will bless you, says God. At this point, I expect 
that the blessing would be all about God, you know, preventing, pre, uh, stopping his prevention of crops and that he would give, you know, a hundredfold of crops and fruit and whatever they need. But interestingly, what God chooses to talk about is Zerubbabel. Isn't that interesting? I, I kind of think it's implied that God will stop uh, his prevention of crops and he will increase them instead. But he chooses to highlight his plans for the governor. I mean, I take it that the assumption behind God's determination to bless them is that his people have started to take steps to return to him. In chapter 1, they started to obey God's voice. They rediscovered their fear of him. They've been stirred by God to begin work. So God calls them to be strong and work because he is with them and that he will now bless because they've returned to him. Well, what is the prime thing that he is going to talk about next as this blessing that they should be looking out for? Well, for the second time of the day, God speaks through Haggai and he tells of this great blessing. Verse 21, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. I mean, this kind of blessing is felt most keenly by nations who are being oppressed by other nations and superpowers. Sadly, there are obvious examples even of that today. What they pray for fervently is for their oppressors to be stopped. The Lord Almighty, who is God over all armies, now chooses to use his stopping power, no longer against crops, but against these superpowers. They're all going to fall over by his hand. Thrones tipped over. Battle chariots thrown. Riders and horses falling. For God is going to turn them against each other. Family using their swords against one another. And in particular, God singles out Zerubbabel, the governor of his people. Verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. A signet ring represents the authority of the king. The ring would have the king's emblem on it, and it's used to seal documents. It would mean that the documents would come with the authority of the king. God is saying that he will give Zerubbabel his authority to represent him like a king. And in future, when people see Zerubbabel, they don't just see the man Zerubbabel, they will see God's mark. When Zerubbabel speaks, it will be words from God. When Zerubbabel acts, it would be actions given by God. Whenever I go to the airport, I kind of joke with my family about how <clears throat> I invariably get stopped and wandered at checkpoints. You know, wandered. You know, you stick your arms out and stuff, you know, stand there, spread your legs, and then do a little bit of a twirl whilst they wand you with a stick. Um, I've, I've tried everything. Every time I go there, I get wandered. I've tried everything. I, I've, I've tried looking away and walking, wandered. I tried looking at them whilst walking through, wandered. I tried moonwalking, wandered. I eat a euros with garlic sauce, oh, definitely wandered, twice. 
Now, it's not as if I kind of present myself to any one of you. Like, if you come to me with your brolly, I'm not going to stick my hands out and get you to wand me, right? It's not as if that's going to happen. It's because the people with the wand at the airport bears the authority of the government of Australia. Whether they be at the checkpoints, whether they be the federal police, in a lot of ways, that wand is like their signet ring. <laughs> Zerubbabel will be God's signet ring with far greater authority than we could ever imagine. It must be so reassuring to God's people that he has a plan to keep them protected from the aggressors around them. Kings have been giving them quite a lot of threatening attention lately, like from Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And just as he's able to turn the hearts of King Cyrus and Darius to let his people return to Jerusalem, he is able to overthrow all rulers and install his own one. They can take courage in God's authority because it bears the mark of God himself. Now, we know surprisingly little about what happens to Zerubbabel after this. The significant thing that we do know, however, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, where we read in your leaflets, Matthew chapter 1, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Jesus is the descendant of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, who is called the Messiah, or Christ, or anointed king. Jesus is ultimately the signet ring of his Father God Almighty. It is Jesus who is exalted to the highest place, before whom every knee will bow, including royal thrones and foreign powers. The greatest blessing for his people for all time is the establishment of King Jesus. There is no threat who is greater than the might of Jesus, no power which can intimidate his people, for God is with us through Jesus by his Spirit. We saw last week that Jesus is God's completed and perfected temple where God resides with his people and guides them and forgives them. Just as God would grant peace in his temple during Haggai's time, he offers ultimate peace in Jesus. We've just celebrated the Lord's Supper, where we remember Jesus offering his body and blood as the sacrifice which would satisfy his Father's anger and judgment. That means that we can be reconciled with God, if we trust in him, at peace with him, rather than facing judgment from him. Romans 5, verse 1, in your leaflet says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God also deals with our impurity and defilement through Jesus. He sets us apart for himself and makes us holy and righteous. So 1 Corinthians 6, in your leaflets again, says, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Today we have much to do in God's house, his body of believers here. God says, be strong and work. How are we going to find our courage? 
How are we going to find our strength? Find strength from his spirit residing within us and delight in his glorious church. He did say that his house is going to surpass all that he had built before. Look around you, not just around you, but for all time of God's universal house, his church. Be courageous with the peace God gives us in Christ. Boldly build, knowing that Jesus has God's ultimate authority. Friends, we have a number here who've been serving and working tirelessly to build one another up. And I want to thank you. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to lean on God and to remember to do it for his honor, for his pleasure. Because if you don't, what happens is that invariably you do it for people. That could be other people. It could be you people, yourself. Every time we do that for the wrong reasons, we end up getting burnt out and discouraged. Do it for the right reasons. Do it to honor God. So when you share about Jesus with others, do it because you want to honor him. When you lead others up the front to worship Jesus in corporate worship, do it for his pleasure. When you care for someone in need, do it in deep dependence upon the Spirit who does more than we ask or imagine. And when you open the Bible with others, do it knowing that God's words has the ultimate of authority. And friends, for those of us who haven't quite connected in yet, why don't you join us? Join us in the building, in the edifying of God's house, his church. For he is with us. And he's drawing us to himself and he's drawing us to one another. I started off talking about the senses, didn't I? At the start. Boy, that would be discouraging, wouldn't it? You look at the, the numbers that are decreasing of people who, are, who would call Christianity their religion. It might be really discouraging. You know what? It's not a great surprise to God. As if anything escapes his attention. He knows all about those who might turn away. He knows what it is all about when he calls his church, his people, to reach out to others, even our First Nations people. He knows it's a challenge. It's not a surprise to him. But you see, what the census people don't know is that God works. And he's determined to build his church. And he's determined to build it and to grow it and to add to it. He's determined to work in us such that we edify and get on with the building work that he has established. They don't know the authority of our great king. His will is that which will prevail. Is it not? Let's pray together. Father, we give you great praise that high above all authorities we see Jesus, your signet ring. Thank you that he is authority, authority from you. 
authority over all else. And Father, we give you, we are just so humbled to see that he, with all this authority, what does he do? He gives himself such that we could have peace if we believe in him. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to be with us as we be strong and build, for our strength comes from you. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.